Hello and welcome to Monthly Spooks number two. Uh, in this episode, we will be trying a new format for the show in which I will read a story and then we will have a sort of a commentary slash discussion about the story. Um, so uh, let's get into it. The Shaggy Gray Arm by Ariel North Olson and Howard Schwartz. John's parents didn't want him to go to magic school. They had heard that some students changed in strange and mysterious ways, and some disappeared without a trace. But John was determined. How else can I chase away ghosts and demons, he asked. How can I overcome bullies? I must learn to write magic signs and symbols so I can protect us. The truth was that his parents didn't want him to go to any school at all. In those days, most people in Iceland believed that reading and writing were dangerous. Someone might use the knowledge for evil purposes. Even clergymen were suspect. But, bit by bit, John convinced his parents that magic could be useful. Didn't they want to see the invisible little people who lived in the rocks and hillocks around their farm, the ones who slipped into the house each night to eat the food left for them on the table? Besides, John promised he would be a good magician. He said he would never dig up a body in a graveyard and skin the lower half to make a pair of magic pants. Who wants the coins that appear in corpses' breeches, he asked. Not me. He said he would undo evil curses that dried up a cow's milk or left a baby crying all day. So his parents finally relented. They waved goodbye to their son with tears in their eyes. Who knew what the future held? Would they ever see him again? John walked for hours. When he finally arrived at magic school, he saw smoke belching from a nearby volcano. He knocked on the school's iron door. A shaggy gray hand poked a hole through the thick iron, reached out to turn the handle, and beckoned John to come inside. The door groaned open. John looked, but he saw no one there. No shaggy gray body belonged to the shaggy gray arm. John did see a spiral staircase leading deep into the earth, and just as he took the first step downward, the door clanged shut behind him. John realized that the hole in the iron door had mysteriously closed, leaving him in inky darkness. He inched his way down, feeling for the edge of each step with his toe. Maybe the stairway seemed endless because he was moving so slowly, or maybe it really did descend to the very bowels of the earth. With each step, he grew warmer as he neared the underground cauldrons of volcanoes. Finally, he saw a faint glow ahead. It was coming through a doorway at the bottom of the stairs. When he entered the cavernous room, the only light he saw was from the fiery letters and books that students held in their hands. No sunlight pierced the darkness of their study hall. No teacher lectured to the class. A boy named Magnus welcomed him, but most kept reading. John knew they couldn't spare a moment from their studies. He remembered what a storyteller had said about the magic in the skin-covered books and how hard it was to learn. Seven years, the storyteller said, that's how long it takes to master everything spelled out in fiery letters. John realized he would have to work hard to catch up with the rest of the class. He had arrived weeks late because it took so long to convince his parents to let him go to magic school. Suddenly, every head snapped up. It was time to eat. 
The shaggy gray arm that John had seen at the iron door now shoved itself through the rock wall of the classroom. It handed each student a platter of fish along with milk and a cup made from a ram's horn. John wondered why the students were listening so intently. He saw the arm withdraw and heard a muffled shriek just before the wall slammed shut. Who was back there? Another student? A shaggy servant? Some students whispered to one another. Some anxiously thumbed through their books, looking for protective spells, but others seemed to grow more menacing. After they finished eating, all quickly returned to their studies. How do I get a book? John wondered aloud. He didn't have to wait for long. The shaggy gray arm thrust through the cave wall and dropped the first magic book on his desk. When the arm withdrew, it left a whiff of sulfur behind. John snorted to get the stench out of his nose. Then he began with the easier spells because he was learning to read and write at the same time. Magnus answered all of John's questions, much to the annoyance of some other students. They wanted to concentrate in perfect silence. Somehow, the fiery letters lit up words in John's mind. When he finally headed to his room, totally exhausted, the same fiery letters lit his way along the corridor as eerily as a candle. Before he fell asleep, he saw the dim back of a student outside his door. He didn't know which one, but just as Magnus walked past, he saw the student wave his hands and mutter something. In a puff of smoke, Magnus disappeared and a slippery slug crept up the wall. John was horrified, but he sneaked into the corridor as soon as he could and put the slug safely on his closet shelf. From then on, he was wary of his classmates. Whom could he trust? Year after year, John studied until he was one of the most talented, ma talented magicians at the school. He finally learned how to turn the slug back into Magnus, and he shared the knowledge that Magnus had missed while making slimy trails in the closet. John could cause another student's baked fish to swim right off the plate. He could turn a ram's horn cup into a wildly budding ram. He knew how to ward off ghosts and demons and how to put special signs inside his shoes to overcome a bully. He learned demonic spells and curses too, but he stored them in the deepest recesses of his mind, never to be used unless he was in extreme danger. After seven years, John and his classmates were about to return to the upper world. All but one, that is. A terrible rumor was being whispered about. Some student was going to disappear without a trace. John hadn't believed what his parents had said so long ago. But now Magnus was saying the same thing, and Magnus knew exactly how it would happen. We'll go up the stairs single file, he said, and everyone will be allowed into the upper world except for the last one in line. The shaggy gray arm will grab him and carry him down to the deepest, darkest depths where he will be a slave forever. John knew he couldn't outdo that demonic gray arm with magic, but he was the leader of his class. He had to do something, so he made a plan. I'll leave last, John told his classmates. Some sneered at him for being such a fool. Magnus thanked him. On the last day, John and his classmates began the long climb up the dark stairs. The shaggy gray arm was holding the iron door open at the top. One by one, his classmates exited into the first sunlight they had seen in seven years. When John reached the door, he saw the shaggy arm reaching for him. I am not the last, John shouted. See the one behind me? John leaped out the door while the shaggy arm seized John's shadow instead. 
When the arm realized what it had done, it rang that iron door like a monstrous symbol, clinging its fury all the way to the center of the earth. John was free. He was almost dancing down the path. Then he saw a demonic grin on Magnus's face. Do you realize that whatever that gray arm takes, it never gives back? John stared at the ground where his shadow should be. And do you realize, Magnus asked, what troubles you'll have with no shadow? Everyone will think you are a demon. They will run away screaming. John suddenly noticed that Magnus had no shadow either. Welcome to my world, said Magnus, shaking John's hand. His grip was excruciatingly painful. John looked down in horror. Creeping down Magnus's arm was a wave of shaggy gray fur. The End Commentary time. Firstly, John's parents don't want him to go to magic school because they think something will happen to him. That's understandable, considering that Hogwarts is supposed to be the safest school of magic and look what happened there. Apparently, John hasn't heard of Harry Potter because he still wants to attend the school and he argues it would be beneficial for the protection of the family. Honestly, he should have listened to his parents. And they discourage reading and writing? No wonder this kid doesn't know who the boy who lived is. I'm kidding. I know that this doesn't take place in the world of Harry Potter, but pretending it does is kind of fun anyway. And what kind of dark arts magic specified that you have to wear the skin of a dead corpse on your legs? Is this Hogwarts or Texas Chainsaw Massacre? I can't believe that the parents let their child go to this place. I can't. I just can't. That foreshadowing, though, and the line a shaggy gray hand poked a hole through the thick iron... Ooh... That should have spelled run right off the bat, because what creature has arms like that? Usually werewolves. Usually. The arm also didn't have a body. I don't know what's wrong with this child that he didn't just book it. Human skin pants, shaggy gray arms with no bodies, books bound in human skin. The fact that this child doesn't mind these things makes me think he's Bubba Sawyer if Bubba was a Hogwarts student, accepting that this is obviously not Hogwarts. This school has erupting volcanoes, descends into the earth, and has the disembodied arms serving drinks and cups made from horns. The students all appear to be focused on their studies to learn a way out before they die, to the point of almost coming across as rude. After spending seven years learning basically how to summon the devil himself, the students are finally released. Happy ending? Or would that be celebrating too soon? This is a horror story. Happy doesn't exist here. So apparently, the last student to ascend the stairs will be claimed in a brief whirl of screams and blood in the shadows. Perfect way to ensure students know how to leave in an orderly manner. What does our hero John do when confronted with this knowledge? I swear this kid is that one person in a horror film that hears a noise in the basement and goes in all alone armed only with a flashlight. Knowing that he probably isn't powerful enough with seven years of knowledge, he elects to be last in the line for the staircase. What is he doing... Oh, no. Let me reword that. What was he doing with dark arts for seven years that he couldn't confront the monster? Didn't Tom Riddle have less experience than this before he nearly upended the entire wizarding realm? And Magnus, supposedly his best friend, just does absolutely nothing to stop him. He just says things like that's a good enough reason for a person's life. Wow. But holy cow was that ending a freaking hairpin turn. I wasn't expecting his own best friend to reveal that their training in the dark arts made them all demons from hell. Talk about a massive species jump. After that, I was no longer surprised. 
As I said before, the volcanoes, the school being located below ground, the dark magic involved, all signs were pointing to demonic activity and not wizarding magic. And that concludes the first half of this month's show. Please consider telling your friends and family about Reading is Leading and stay tuned the first Friday of every month for more spooky tales. Don't forget that we are also putting up new shows every Monday and Friday, too. And now for the section of our show that isn't for the faint of heart. Ooh, yes, a spooky advertisement. <laughs> I bet I caught you, didn't I? But, um, no, uh, we're moving on to the adult section of the show. Um, so, yeah, be prepared for this to get a ton spookier, even with all the issues it has. <laughs> Penny from Brooklyn. Clinton Street, Brooklyn is one of the oldest sections of that borough, pleasantly middle class at one time, still amongst Brooklyn's best neighborhoods as neighborhoods go. The house in question is in the 300 block and consists of four stories. There was a basement floor, then a parlor floor a few steps up, as is the usual custom with brownstone houses, with a third and fourth floor above it. If one preferred, one could call the third floor the fourth floor, in which case the basement becomes the first floor. But no matter how one called it, there were four levels in this brownstone, all capable of serving as apartments for those who wished to live there. The house was more than 100 years old at the time of the events herein described, and the records are somewhat dim beyond a certain point. In the 1960s, the house was owned by some offbeat people, about whom little was known. Even the Hall of Records isn't of much help, as the owners didn't always live in the house, and the people who lived in it were not necessarily the owners, not to mention tenants, although sharing a part of the house with people legitimately entitled to live there. However, for the purpose of my story, we need only concern ourselves with the two top floors. The third floor contained two bedrooms and a bath, while the fourth or top floor consisted of a living room, dining room, kitchen, and second bath. At the time my account begins, the first two floors were rented to an architect and his wife, and only the two top floors were available for new tenants. It was in the summer when two young ladies in their early 20s who had been living at the Brooklyn YWCA decided to find a place of their own. Somehow, they heard of the two vacant floors in the house on Clinton Street and immediately, and immediately fell in love with it, renting the two top floors without much hesitation. Both Barbara and Sharon were 23 years old at the time, still going to college and trying to make ends meet on what money they could manage between them. Two years later, Barbara was living in San Francisco with a business of her own, independently merchandising clothing. Brooklyn was only a hazy memory by then, memory by then, but on August 1st of the year, she and Sharon moved in. It was very much her world. Immediately after moving in, they decided to clean up the house, which needed it indeed. The stairway to the top floor was carpeted all the way up, and it was quite a job to vacuum it clean because there were a lot of outlets along the way, and one had to look out for extension cords. Sharon got to the top floor and was cleaning it when she removed the extension cord to plug it in further up. Instead, she just used the regular cord of the vacuum cleaner, which was about 12 feet long, using perhaps 3 feet of it, which left 9 feet of cord lying on the floor. All of a sudden, the plug just pulled out of the wall. Sharon couldn't believe her eyes. The plug actually pulled itself out of the socket and flew out onto the floor. 
She shook her head and put it back in and turned the vacuum cleaner on again. Only then did she realize that she had turned the switch on the cleaner back on when she had never actually turned it off in the first place. She couldn't figure out how that was possible, but she had a lot more work to do, so she continued with it. Later, she came downstairs and described the incident to her roommate, who thought she was out of her mind. Wait till something happens to you, Sharon said. There's something strange about this house. During the next five months, the girls heard strange noises all over the house, but they attributed it to an old house to an old house settling or the people living downstairs in the building. Five months of peace were rudely shattered when Sharon's younger brother came to visit from New Jersey. He was still in high school and liked to listen to music at night, especially when it was played as loud as possible. The young people were sitting in the living room, listening to music and talking. It was a nice, relaxed evening. All of a sudden, the stereo went off. The music had been rather loud rock and roll, and at first they thought the volume had perhaps damaged the set. Then the hallway light went out, followed by the kitchen light, so they thought a fuse had blown. Barbara ran down four flights of stairs into the basement to check. No fuse had blown. To be on the safe side, she checked them anyway and switched them around to make sure everything was fine. Then she went back upstairs and asked the others how the electricity was behaving. But everything was still off. At this point, Sharon's brother decided to go into the kitchen and try the lights there. Possibly there was something wrong with the switches. He went into the hallway where there was an old Tiffany-type lamp hanging at the top of the stairway. It had gone off too, and he tried to turn it on, and nothing happened. He pulled again, and suddenly it went on. In other words, he turned it off first, then turned it on, so it had been on in the first place. This rather bothered the young man, and he announced he was going into the kitchen to get something to eat. He proceeded into the kitchen, and when he came back to join in, to join the others, he was as white as the wall. He reported that the kitchen was as cold as an icebox, but as soon as one left the kitchen, the temperature was normal in the rest of the house. The others then got up to see for themselves, and sure enough, it was icy cold in the kitchen. This was despite the fact that there were four or five radiators going and all the windows were closed. That night, they knew they had a ghost, and for want of a better name, they called her Hendrix. It happened to have been the anniversary of Jimi Hendrix's death, and they had been playing some of his records. Shortly afterward, Toby joined the other two girls in the house. Toby moved in on April 1st. It had been relatively quiet between the incident in the kitchen and that day, but somehow Toby's arrival was also the beginning of a new aspect of the haunting. About a week after Toby moved in, the girls were in, in the living room talking. It was about 11 o'clock at night, and they had dimmers on in the living room. Today, I mean, today, huh, oh my god. Toby was sitting on the couch, and Barbara and some friends were sitting on the other side of the room when all of a sudden she felt a chilly breeze pass by her. It didn't touch her, but she felt it nonetheless, and just then the lights started to dim back and forth, back and forth, and when she looked up, she actually saw the dial on the dimmer moving by itself. As yet, Toby knew nothing about the haunting, so she decided to say nothing to the others, having just moved in, and not wishing to have her new roommates think her weird. 
But things kept happening night after night, usually after 11 o'clock when two girls and their friends sat around talking. After a couple of weeks, she could not stand it any longer and finally asked the others where they could feel, whether they could feel anything strange in the room. Barbara looked at Sharon and a strange look passed between them. Finally, they decided to tell Toby about the haunting and brought her up to date from the beginning of their tenancy in the house. Almost every day there was something new to report. Cooking equipment would be missing, clothing would disappear, windows were, open, were opened by themselves, garbage cans would be turned over by unseen hands. Throughout that period, there was the continued walking of an unseen person in the living room located directly over the third floor bedroom, and the girls heard it at any hour of the night, and once in a while even during the day. Someone was walking back and forth, back and forth. They were loud, stomping footsteps, more like a woman's, but they sounded as if someone were very angry. Each time one of them went upstairs to check, they found absolutely nothing. The girls held a conference and decided that they had a ghost. Make no mistake about it. Toby offered to look into the matter and perhaps find out what might have occurred at the house at an earlier age. Barbara kept hearing an obscure whistling, not a real tune or song that could be recognized, but a human whistle nevertheless. Meanwhile, Toby heard of a course on witchcraft and the occult being given at the New York University and started to take an interest in books on the subject. But whenever there were people over to visit them and they stayed in the living room upstairs past 11 o'clock at night, the ghost would simply run them out of the room with all the tricks in her ghostly trade. She would turn the stereo on and off or make the lights go on and off. By now, they were convinced it was a woman. There were heavy shutters from the floor to the ceiling and frequently it appeared as if a wind were coming through them and they would clap together as if the breeze were agitating them. Immediately after that, they heard footsteps walking away from them and there was an uncomfortable feeling in the room, making it imperative to leave and go somewhere else, usually downstairs into one of the bedrooms. As yet, no one had actually seen her. That June, Bruce, Toby's boyfriend, moved into the house with her. They had the master bedroom, and off the bedroom was a bathroom. Since Barbara would frequently walk through in the middle of the night, they left the light on in the bathroom all night so that she would not trip over anything. That particular night in June, Toby and her boyfriend were in bed, and she was looking up, not at the ceiling, but at the wall, when suddenly she saw a girl looking at her. It was just like an outline, like a shadow on the wall, but Toby could tell that she had long hair arranged in braids. Somehow, she had the impression that she was an Indian, perhaps because of the braids. Toby looked up at her and called the apparition to her boyfriend's attention, but by the time he had focused on it, she had disappeared. He simply did not believe her. Instead, he asked Toby to go upstairs to the kitchen and make him a sandwich. She wasn't up there for more than five or ten minutes when she returned to the bedroom and found her boyfriend hidden under the covers of the bed. When she asked him what was wrong, he would shake his head, and so she looked around the room but could find nothing unusual. The only thing she noticed was that the bathroom was now wide open. She assumed that her boyfriend had gone to the bathroom, but he shook his head and told her that he had not. He had just been lying there smoking a cigarette when all of a sudden he saw the handle on the door turn by itself and the door open. When he saw that, he simply dove under the covers until Toby returned. From that moment on, he no longer laughed at her stories about a house ghost.
The following night, her boyfriend was asleep when Toby woke up woke up at two o'clock in the morning. The television set had been left on, and she went to shut it off, and when she got back into bed, she happened to glance at the same place on the wall where she had seen the apparition the night before. For a moment or two, she saw the same outline of a girl, only this time she had the impression that the girl was smiling at her. Two weeks after that, Toby and her boyfriend broke up, and this rather shook her. She had come back home one day and didn't know that he had left when she found a note in which he explained his reasons for leaving and that he would get in touch with her later. This very much upset her, so much so that her two roommates had to calm her down. Finally, the two girls went upstairs and Toby was lying on the bed trying to compose herself. In the quiet of the room, she suddenly heard someone sob a little and then a voice said, Toby. Toby got up from bed and went to the bottom of the stairs and called up, demanding to know what Barbara wanted, but no one had called her. She went back to the room and lay down on the bed again. Just then, she heard a voice saying, Toby, again and again. On checking, she found that no one had called out to her, no one of flesh and blood, that is. Toby then realized who had been calling her, and she decided to talk to Henny, her nickname for Hendrix, which was the name given by the others to the ghost since that night when they were playing Jimi Hendrix records. In a quiet voice, Toby said, Henny, did you call me? And then she heard the voice answer, Calm down. Don't take it so hard. It'll be all right. It was a girl's voice, and yet there was no one to be seen. The time was about five o'clock in the afternoon, and since it was in June, the room was still fairly light. Toby had hardly recovered from this experience when still another event took place. Sharon had moved out, and another girl by the name of Madeline had moved in. One day, her brother came to visit them from Chicago, and he, bought a, and he brought a friend along who had had some experience of a spiritual nature. His name was Joey, and both boys were about 20 to 21 years old. Madeline and her brother were much interested in the occult, and they brought a Ouija board to the house. On Saturday, December 19th, while it was snowing outside and the atmosphere was just right for a seance, they decided to make contact with the unhappy ghost in the house. They went upstairs into the living room and sat down with the board. At first it was going to be a game, and they were asking silly questions of it such as who was going to marry who and other romantic fluff. But halfway through the session, they decided to try to contact the ghost in earnest. The three girls and Madeline's brother sat down on the floor with their knees touching and put the board on top. Then they invited Henny to appear and talk to them if she was so inclined. They were prepared to pick up the indicator and place their hands on it so it could move to various letters on the board. But before their hands ever touched it, the indicator took off by itself. It shot over to the word yes on the board as if to reassure them that communication was indeed desired. The four of them looked at each other dumbfounded, for they had seen only too clearly what had just transpired. By now, they were all somewhat scared. However, Toby decided that since she was going to be interested in psychic research, she might as well ask the questions. She began asking why the ghostly girl was still attached to the house. Haltingly, word for word, Henny replied and told her sad story. It was a slow process since every word had to be spelled out letter by letter, but the young people didn't mind the passage of time. They wanted to know why Henny was with them. It appears that the house once belonged to her father, a medical doctor. Her name was Cesa Rist, and she had lived in the house with her family. 
Unfortunately, she had fallen in love with a young man and had become pregnant by him. She wanted to marry him and have the baby, but her father would not allow it and forced her to have an abortion. He did it in the house himself, and she died during the abortion. Her body was taken to Denver, Colorado, and buried in the family plot. She realized that her boyfriend was dead also, because this all happened a long time ago. Her reasons for staying on in the house were to find help. She wanted her remains to be buried near her lovers in New York. Do you like the people who live in the house? Yes, the ghost replied. Is anyone who lives here ever in any danger? Yes, people who kill babies. This struck the young people as particularly appropriate. A close friend, not present at the time, had just had an abortion. Will you appear to us? Cisa has, the ghost replied, and as if to emphasize this statement, there suddenly appeared the shadow of a cross on the kitchen wall, for which there was no possible source, except, of course, from the parapsychological point of view. The girls realized they did not have the means to go to Denver and exhume Cisa's remains and bring it to New York, and they told the ghost as much. Is there anything else we can do to help you? Contact Holzer, she said. By that time, of course, Toby had become familiar with my works and decided to sit down and write me a letter telling me of their problem. They could not continue with the Ouija board or anything else that night. They were all much too shaken up. On Monday, Toby typed up the letter they had composed and sent it to me. Since they were not sure the letter would reach me, they decided to do some independent checking concerning the background of the house and, if possible, try to locate some record of Cisa Wrist. But they were unsuccessful, even at the Hall of Records, the events having apparently transpired at a time when records were not yet kept, or at least not properly kept. When I received the letter, I was just about to leave for Europe and would be gone two and a half months. I asked the girls to stay in touch with me, and after my return, I would look into the matter. After Toby had spoken to me on the telephone, she went back into the living room and sat down quietly. She then addressed Henny and told her she had contacted me and that it would be a couple of months before I could come to the house because I had to go to Europe. Barbara decided not to wait, however. One night, she went upstairs to talk to Henny. She explained the situation to her and asked why she was still hanging around the house. She explained that her agony was keeping her in the house and that she must let go of it in order to go on and join her boyfriend in the great beyond. Above all, she should not be angry with them because it was their home now. Somehow, Barbara felt that the ghost understood and nothing happened, nothing frightening at all. Relieved, Barbara sat down in a chair facing the couch. She was just sitting there smoking a cigarette, wondering whether Henny really existed or whether perhaps she was talking to thin air. At the moment, an ethereal form entered the room and stood near the couch. It looked as if she were leaning on the arm of the couch or holding onto the side of it. She saw the outline of the head and what looked like braids around the front of her chest. For half a minute, she was there, and then she suddenly disappeared. It looked to Barbara as if the girl had been five foot four inches, weighing perhaps 120 pounds. Stunned, Barbara sat there for another 10 or 15 minutes, trying to believe what she had seen. She smoked another five cigarettes and then walked downstairs to try to go to sleep. But sleep would not come. She kept thinking about her experience. Excuse me. At the time Sharon left, they were interviewing potential roommates to replace her. 
One particularly unpleasant girl had come over and fallen in love with the house. Both Barbara and Toby didn't want her to move in, but she seemed all set to join them, so Toby decided to tell her about the ghost. She hoped it would stop the girl from moving in. As Toby delineated their experiences with Henny, the would-be roommate became more and more nervous. All of a sudden, there was a loud crash in the kitchen, and they went to check on it. The garbage can had turned itself over, and all the garbage was spilled all over the kitchen, even though no one had been near it. The new girl took one look at this and ran out as fast as she could. She never came back. But shortly afterward, Toby went on vacation to California. There, she made arrangements to move and found employment in the market research department of a large department store. Under the circumstances, the girls decided not to renew the lease, which was up in July, but to move to another apartment for a short period. That September, they moved to California. Under the circumstances, they did not contact me any further, and I assumed that matters had somehow been straightened out or that there had been a change in their plans. It was not until a year later that we somehow met in California, and I could fill in the missing details of Henny's story. On the last day of the women's stay at the house on Clinton Street, with the movers going in and out of the house, Toby went back into the house for one more look and to say goodbye to Henny. She went up to the living room and said a simple goodbye and hoped that Henny would be all right, but there was no answer, no feeling of a presence. For a while, the house stood empty, then it was purchased by the father of an acquaintance of the girls. Through Alan, they heard of the new people who had moved in after the house was sold. One day, when they had just been in the house for a few days, they returned to what they assumed to be an empty house. They found their kitchen flooded with water. There were two inches of water everywhere throughout the kitchen, yet they knew they had not left the water taps on. Why had Henny turned the water on and let it run? Perhaps Henny didn't like the new tenants after all, but she had little choice, really. Being a ghost, she was tied to the house. Following her friends to San Francisco was simply impossible the way ghosts operate, and unless or until the new tenants on Clinton Street, Clinton Street call for my services, there is really nothing I can do to help Henny. Okay, so on to the commentary for this section. Um, the author wrote at the beginning that the records of events at the house are somewhat dim and that the house is 100 years old. The author also mentioned that the house is split into apartments for multiple tenants. I'm not normally 100% skeptical of the paranormal since I have my own experiences that probably need saving for their own episode, but those first items alone, vagueness, age of the house, and possible occupancy of multiple families or people from different families really kind of make this seem like it's setting up to be the kind of story that kids tell each other around campfires, and with those, it does lose a small modicum of belief within the first paragraph. The possibility of neighbors living in the same house actually offers a very viable possibility for many kinds of strange occurrences within a house, some of which include noise, odd shadows, and even the explanation for weird stains appearing on the walls. The author also says that the reader need only concern themselves in this story with the top two floors, psychologically conditioning us not to think about possible causes arising from the lower floors. 
The first paranormal occurrence is a vacuum cord pulling itself out of a plug in the wall. This is supposedly in the early 1920s, so the vacuum checks out. However, I have seen cords jump out of wall sockets, usually due to an electrical anomaly where sparks from a frayed wire force it out. This does not mention sparks, which may have possibly been present in the original event. In the incident involving Sharon's younger brother, rock music is mentioned. This does not check out. Certainly there was fast-paced music made to jump around to or dance to in the 1920s, but rock and roll? Uh, rock and roll wouldn't be officially created for another 30 years. The timpani lamp mentioned in this event does check out, however. Not that that rules out the music not checking out, so keep that in mind. The electrical issues in the music event do check out, but it's also possible that it could be due to another problem with faulty wiring. The house is 100 years old at the time. At this time, after all. After that, the brother says the kitchen is as cold as ice, and although the book mentions shut windows and working radiators, it does not say if a door was left open or the possibility that the women may have at least had a prototype refrigerator in their apartment that had been left open. At the close of this event, Jimi Hendrix is mentioned as the namesake of the ghost. This rock legend wasn't even born until 1961 and gained popularity in late 1966. Again, not the 1920s. So now the things that don't check out are the date and the rock music and the date and Jimi Hendrix. Moving to the next haunting event, which happened after Toby moved in, the living room grows cold and the lights flicker when Toby is entertaining company, and somehow she is the only one who notices. Strike number three. Or is it? The other girls later admit to knowing about the haunting, and seeing as it's hard to tell whether this is 1920 or 1975, it's hard to understand why they would pretend like nothing is happening. Still, strike three. Another paranormal experience takes place mostly at night on the third floor wherein a woman is heard stomping around. The sound is coming from the room above the bedroom. Here's the kicker. The story opens with saying that Barbara and Sharon had moved into the top two floors, and I don't think that they were constantly coming down to stay with Toby. I would not be surprised if those sounds were either of those two women during bad nights. After this, Toby starts to look into witchcraft and the occult, which honestly doesn't have much to do with actual haunting, and it's at this time that they inexplicably start referring to the ghost as female. There is nothing in their evidence at this time stating that the spirit, if there is one, is female. Heavy window shutters begin to open and shut, and footsteps are heard again. Personally, I come from a place where our daily winds could throw your back door, heavy as that thing is, wide open on the right day. So it's pretty hard to tell me that some wind isn't moving something fairly heavy. And those footsteps? Well, should I mention it again, that it could have been someone on the upper floor? It's very likely that people can have very slight, almost imperceptible hearing issues. I can hear anything just fine most of the time, but if you ask me to follow a sound, I'm very likely to go in the wrong direction because I have problems discerning direction of sound, and I'm likely not the only person who suffers from this. And for the most part, it is unnecessary for a person to need to know where most sounds are coming from outside of a very generalized knowledge of your surroundings. So someone with this issue, especially in the 1920s or 1970s, as in this story, may very well go undiagnosed. Soon after these events, Toby starts seeing what appears to be the shadow of a woman in braids. I feel 
awful saying this considering my own experiences, but seeing the paranormal is honestly one of the hardest events to garner evidence for, especially in text. So this is one of those moments where you have to take it or leave it, depending on your experiences, and that usually doesn't serve to support a paranormal case story very well. Plus, the second time Toby sees anything, the shadow may be able to be explained by objects outside casting outside casting shadows through a window or by her own shadow being cast. The author does not even attempt to debunk these possibilities before moving on. Toby has another individualized experience with Hendrix in which Hendrix calls out her name when she is heartbroken and then offers her some calming words, and during this time, Toby calls the ghost Henny. Again, this kind of evidence that cannot be tested isn't a very good foundation for a ghost case. And what kind of a ghost case would be would this be without a friend bringing a Ouija board to the house? Of course, fewer people in the time range for this story knew very much about the occult and the paranormal, but can I just say that this was still a very inept and risky move? So, apparently they make contact with Henny, who tells them that her real name is Cisa Rist, that the house belonged to her family, that she fell in love with someone and became pregnant, that she wanted to marry him and raise the child, and that her dad did not want that and forced an abortion on her. She died while he was operating on her. Did anyone notice her name? Cisa Rist. That doesn't sound a bit like Caesar as in Caesarean section, also known as a C-section. No? Just me? Okay. Well, I think it's a well-played pun. Cisa then explains that she stayed around in the hopes of telling the living to bury her body alongside her dead boyfriend in New York. She also wants them to know that if anyone is ever in trouble in that house, it's people who kill babies. Well, who wouldn't be in trouble then? Then, the various people involved with the board see the shadow of a cross on the wall when Cisa says she has manifested to them. The author again makes it a point not to debunk other sources and says there was no possible source except, of course, from the parapsychological point of view. Like the exorcist, this just keeps getting funnier every single time I see it, because after this instance, the girls ask Cisa what else they can do for her since moving her body is not plausible, and she tells them to literally call the author who wrote the book. Wow. Big shock. Unsurprisingly, the girls couldn't find an actual record of Cisa Rist living at that house. Barbara sees Cisa try to manifest as a full apparition after she tells her that she needs to leave for her own good, and when a new girl that Toby and Barbara don't like tries to move in, Cisa supposedly helps them to frighten her off. When the girls move out, Cisa's presence leaves the house. Again, wow. The author concludes the case by saying that unless the new tenants make a call, there is nothing he can do to help Henny cross over, and it's implied that she needs to because she doesn't like the new tenants. The amount of things that don't check out or that don't get investigated by the people involved to help support the case in their favor is just colossal. I have my own paranormal experiences, and even I am doubting the truth of this case. But that concludes our show for this month. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. And as always, tell everyone you can about the Reading is Leading podcast and stay tuned Mondays and Fridays for our shows. That is Reading is Leading. Peace out. See you next month.